0: Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered.
1: We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment.
0: From systemic trauma to abusive power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy, Irby, and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing Bringing humanity humanity back back to to medicine. medicine.
1: Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. I want to take a quick second to remind our listeners that we are going to do a little fun activity at the end of this episode. So if you have it in you stick around, it's kind of a tough listen. And if you were a healthcare worker during COVID might not be the time for you. Fast forward, don't X out fast forward to the end. We're going to talk about season one and what you can expect from season two. We are dishing the deets. Is that a saying? It should be a saying yeah it is it is from now on <laughs> Do millennials write sayings anymore all right <laughs> on to the show
0: <laughs> hey y'all and welcome back to another episode of pulse check podcast i'm Hee and i'm mandy and today we are diving into uh, the new patient code of conduct that mass general brigham has recently unveiled Now on previous podcasts, Mandy and I have talked about the rock in a hard place that we often find medical professionals in where you need to treat this person, but they're abusing you. And so when you look around for help, when you look around for someone to defend you, when you look around for advice on how do I actually serve my patient, help them get better, but keep myself safe. Traditionally, we have found crickets. So when this came across, someone actually sent this article to me. One of my nurse friends in Boston sent it to me and said, and no, this is going to light a fire in you. And I just had to share and boy, was she right. I immediately sent it to Mandy and was like, oh my gosh, we have to talk about this because as much of a patient advocate that I am, as much as I see how broken the system is and patients pay the price, I also see very well how much our medical professionals pay the price too when we have administration that will not keep them safe. And ultimately when patients are abused and providers, I do believe that that is an administration problem and not a problem with your patients. I think patients will push every single line and boundary that they're allowed. And until someone says, we won't accept this, you cannot come back here to get care. If you can't behave, I think that patients will continue to act the way that they will.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I'm so glad you sent it, and I'd like to know. Like, it kind of sounds like it's the the first, or maybe it's not the first, but it's not that common to have a patient code of conduct. Is that what you got from this?
0: It is. I mean, I think that generally, I almost think that hospitals will let a lot a lot of stuff slide under the rug in the name of money and pushing that bottom line and keeping that patient coming back. And if it's at the expense of the safety of your nurses and your providers, then almost like so be it. And of course, I'm not a medical professional. This is just years of hearing people in medicine be treated this way. And so as an outsider, it does feel like hospitals will often prioritize profit over actually keeping their staff safe. Someone Mm -hmm. that really opened my eyes to this was Katie Duke. She talks about it a lot on her social media about how hospitals do have an obligation and a responsibility to keep their employees safe and the people who work for them safe. And I couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm curious if you think this code of conduct will actually help keep healthcare professionals safe.
0: I think that I think it'll all come down to how is it enforced, you know, will Mass General really prioritize keeping their employees safe and truly turning away people who historically have abused and beat up on ER staff and med search staff and staff over the holidays when they have nowhere else to go or your recurrent patients that are always there and they're always abusing people. What are we really going to do with them? You know, and that's an ethical issue. Hospitals aren't supposed to turn people away. You don't want to be the administrator that says, you know, Joe that has hung out here for the last 17 years because Mm -hmm. he is our town's homeless man. He can't come back anymore because he continues to beat up on our staff. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be that administrator, but you also don't want your staff being beat up. Hey, I get it.
1: Yeah. That's a really tough spot. And on the outside looking, and I think this is great progress for healthcare workers. However, I don't agree Mm. that it's going to ensure safety for a few reasons. And I will outline below first, (laughs) this is written by the hospital.
0: So Mm.
1: it doesn't ensure safety. It just ensures that they posted something on their website and they made it public and they told news agencies about it. I saw it when I searched it, I saw it in the news article which they're all about, right? They are a business with a bottom line to profit. And this is the ethical dilemma that we are under right now because we are under a healthcare system that is a for-profit system. So they actually can turn folks away and they do all the time. They transfer to other hospitals and they get annoyed and frustrated because some places do, some individuals do inside. There's pressure around that because then... Those hospitals cover those maybe like high expense patients. There's, there's no healthcare worker who is like, oh my gosh, we can't do this because Mm -hmm. it's going to be expensive. Like it doesn't come out of their pockets, but it does like the pressure is there. Right. So the, the folks that do transfers and take transfers, like there's a whole culture there, but it's within a for-profit healthcare. So. The hospital has to be profitable. And this could be one way that they are going to go lean on the folks that you're talking about, maybe folks who are using the ED for primary care. Now, that is a whole other conversation in and of itself and like access to healthcare. And the ED, the way that the access of, to healthcare has changed, healthcare deserts, the ED is the only option for many, many folks. Uh, In my area, I'm seeing these like freestanding EDs pop up, which is really confusing, right? So I'm a consumer of healthcare and I'm like, what are those? Because there's urgent cares, there's telehealth, there's freestanding EDs, and then there's EDs attached to the hospital. We can guarantee that the healthcare system has a plan to stay profitable around this. That's the first nurses United. We'll put the stat up. We'll put the link up again. We talk about nurses United a lot in our past episodes. Nurses are the most abused profession in the workplace period. I'm talking all workplaces, right? We've shared that before. We mean like police, prison guards, places where you think people are aggressive. Nurses receive the most aggression.
0: Which um, is bizarre because they are also America's most trusted profession. So how can you take your most trusted person and abuse them? Most? Kick the shit out of them. It when almost, you, Yeah, almost tracks. If you look at abuse, you abuse the people who are closer to you. You abuse the people who you know are going to come back, are going to take care of you. Are those safe people? They get the most abuse.
1: I got in your head, didn't I? It's a cycle of abuse. It's almost like nurses have been programmed and conditioned and groomed, if I can use that word, because it's disgusting, right? For this role, unconsciously, through society, through perpetuating abusive cycles in other areas of society, you can see it, I can see it. And we are not in it. And so we can't speak for everybody's lived experience, but it is a prime spot for abuse and mistreatment. All healthcare professionals are public facing. And I do have something to say about physicians. We haven't forgot about you in just a second. They deserve to feel safe and be treated respectfully. Hands down. There's no question about that. They deserve to go to work and feel safe. And if like the last two years, haven't just shown a light on, on the fact that they haven't for a very long time. Now the public knows we haven't for a very long time felt safe, felt supported by our leadership, felt supported by, I mean, it's obvious, right? And we're able to communicate about that a little more freer and openly now we're kind of getting language for it. And it's so fucking empowering as someone who helps improve systems within the healthcare infrastructure. There are so many other improvements to be made than a piece of paper on a website and like a declaration trust is a two-way street when we talk about trauma-informed care one of the tenants and one of the ways to mitigate trauma especially in birth spaces is what I talk about and teach about is trusting relationship with healthcare professionals and it's not a given I know everyone's like but we voted nurses are the most trusting or second to most trusting them and teachers like do get out all the time. Then why are you abusing us? <laughs> it's a two-way street within healthcare and within trust because I think they want to be trusted. People want to trust nurses. We've been told you should trust the healthcare system. You should trust medicine. You should trust your doctor. Yet when folks get into those situations, it, when consumers get into those situations and nurses, this is like a mind salad for me right now because- Because I'm doing a lot of work on the nurse side of they're taught coercive language. Physicians are taught coercive language. So it doesn't feel like trust when they're in it. Even though we talk about that word, I think both parties are like, in no other part of my life would I have a relationship like this and be like, oh, I'm so excited to go have lunch with so-and-so again because they treat me right. As a parent, I think about that all the time. I talk to my young children about what's a good friend. And they're like, such and such is the bully. He always is my boss. I was like, hold on. What? Why are we hanging around people that boss you around? Like, what's a good friend? And so outside what is trust feels different than inside of healthcare. What is trust? You're kind of like, I know I'm supposed to. And then it feels like professionals come in and they're like, you trust me, right? It's earned. It's earned. And so to say to a patient, you need to treat us a certain way is one thing without Providing that treatment ahead of expecting it is a totally other monster in my mind. It is inappropriate, disrespectful. That's not how we do relationships. And I don't think that a business can say that and expect something in return when they're not really giving safe experiences as the majority right now, we're hearing stories, and I have research articles here. When we incorporate trauma into the equation, women and folks who are socialized as women or female are more brutal, more often brutalized by men and cis men. Um, when we think about trauma, especially in our reproductive healthcare arena, it's normal for there to be requests about providers. It's normal. For there to be requests it is vulnerable inherently vulnerable as the patient to go in and there be someone on call that you don't have any say about um receiving health care puts the patient in an inherently very vulnerable situation period like that's just how it is if they feel disempowered by the role of the physician because the physician is in a place of authority in that space compounded that that person is a cis male that can and should be voiced and defining discrimination discrimination does not exist um, against the majority group which would be white cis men Mm -hmm. that is a request for safe care and a request for safety in my mind and on this the patient code of conduct Its goal is to help build healthy and thriving communities. Everyone should expect a safe, caring, and inclusive environment in all of our spaces. Okay, great words. I love all those words mashed together. I love them individually. They're beautiful. Our code of conduct helps us meet this goal. How? Words or actions that are disrespectful, racist, discriminatory, hostile, or harassing are not welcome. Deal. Examples of this include offensive comments about others, race, accent, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or other personal traits. Offensive comments is super subjective. And I agree. Don't be offensive. Don't say racist shit, even covertly racist, even covertly damaging, even covertly ableist. Don't say shit about people's religion. And I've experienced it. I've seen it. I've had people not take care of patients. I've seen providers and nurses not take care of patients because they had hateful shit spewing out of their mouth about race and religion. Not tolerated. No. However, what is construed as I have seen also, my experience is not the only experience, please, like, not even the most important, but we're here on the podcast, right? I have seen providers, male, cis, het, white, usually providers get offended by a patient saying, I don't want a man providing care. I will not have a cervical exam by a male doctor. I will not have a cervical exam by a male first year medical student. And it would be the same for whatever role that they were in performing exams, physical exams. They said, I will not have a physical exam if at all humanly possible. And then we had providers who were like all in their feelings about it. And they would get mad and retaliate and say, things outside of the room about them inside of the room. Like you want good care. You're going to have to have me who's deciding on if this is offensive, because to me, that's totally acceptable behavior for addressing your own personal safety within the healthcare system, which is what this patient code of conduct states to be doing, but the statement doesn't do it.
0: Just how hard is it as a system I mean, maybe it's hard the way that the system is set up now. That doesn't seem to be my problem. I just look at the hospitals and say, fix it. How hard is it to make sure that you have a female on every shift? How hard is it to make sure that you have a person of color provider on every shift? Oh, now no, that last one is pretty hard. Because what? Because you're not hiring them. Right. You're not right. hiring people of color. So you don't have a black provider to put on you, the night shift. Or you're you not a safe space not.
1: for folks of color to work.
0: You don't have the people that you need to accurately and compassionately serve your community, but that's not the community's fault. That's your fault. You have to fix that. I don't think that that is a tall ask of hospital systems to make sure that on every single shift, there's a variety of providers that patients can choose from in order to make themselves feel safe.
1: And then the conversation should include, how can we help provide that for you? How can we use our expansive resources? I mean, hell, if I go to Walmart and say, maybe this isn't okay. Pretend we don't have smartphones. Pretend it's 1998 and we're at Walmart. And you're like, Hey, I really need this squash mellow. My kid really needs the squash mellow. I need it for Christmas. Do you have this kind? Boop, 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 boop. No, man, we don't have that kind, but the Walmart in downtown has that kind. And I'm like, oh my God, really? Tears in my eyes. I'm going to get the squash melon for my baby. Oh my God, this is the best Christmas ever. How do I get it? And they're like, hold on, let me call. I Susan's the manager. Let me call Susan and have her hold it for you. Okay, great. Thank you so much. It's almost like you're the same business right
0: Yeah, like now, how can walmart do it better than a hospital system
1: and like in many ways ew but <laughs> <laughs> in many ways they're the same they're probably in bed together and they probably are, right i haven't looked hospital walmart might own a hospital before i would be aware of it <laughs> like way closer to the truth than this patient code of conduct being approved by mandy <laughs> the code of mandy rejects your patient code of conduct first let's start with applying evidence-based practice to the care that you already post on your website that you provide how about trauma-informed care to the care that you already provide instead of saying you need to be better patients now there is a fine line that we are writing right now because there are hurt professionals so deeply hurt and like That experience of being kicked in the face by someone that all you're trying to do is provide respectful, compassionate healthcare for with the resources that you have that are limited and the moral injury, the trauma that comes from that, the complex trauma is severe. And we're not laughing at that at all, but it is not a one source problem. So with the rise of covid there's been more violence inside of hospitals as well. And I'm sure that's where this is coming from is like their staff are leaving. They don't feel safe. And they're like, Ooh, patient problem. And so my second call to action, provide trauma-informed care, provide respectful care, outline these subjective statements because they're going to be, I can already see that they're going to be weaponized against patients because it's paternalistic. I've seen bill of rights be weaponized against patients. Like it's paternalistic. So it is taught that top-down model, that paternalistic professional healthcare hierarchy model is taught so that the patient is at the bottom. And that is how patients perceive it often though. I love where we're going with that. And it's often how professionals are taught though. I love where we're going with that. A slow, but steady race to fix it. With the rise in COVID, there, is more, there was more violence and has been more violence. Did people get meaner in COVID? I mean, kind of depends on how you define it. Or were they responding to a scary situation appropriately? That's what I think it was. Right. It's like fight or flight. It's how can I have effective action when I don't feel safe in this situation? And folks didn't feel safe and it's valid because they weren't. And they probably still aren't very safe. And that's what healthcare professionals are saying. And that's what we're seeing in the leave from the bedside is this wave. And everyone calls it a nursing shortage. That's fucking bullshit. It's not a nursing shortage. It's a safety shortage. It's kind of like we fucked around for so long. We're finding out what profit-driven healthcare looks like, results in. And it doesn't result in staff taking shit for forever and this feels like violence this code of contact feels like violence in the workplace is their staff's like exit survey yeah and it feels like oh wow so like you didn't feel safe you were hurt we need to go fix why we think you were hurt Healthcare workers should never have been put in situations that they were put in in COVID crisis after crisis, without safety precautions for themselves at a minimum, and then adding on limited resources for their patients. They had an impossible task with impossible goals that they could never meet. They're compassionate and they are exploited because they weren't safe. They were getting sick and dying, and they knew the quality of care that everyone needed. They know what they could do they know what their team could do they know what their facility should be doing and none of it was being able to be done they were stressed and they were frustrated there was not enough staff there were way too many patients to care for often they weren't even on their home unit they weren't even like feeling that teamwork camaraderie they were working with people they didn't know and places they weren't familiar with and in patient populations they weren't used to caring for they were struggling and their patients were struggling and that Was compounding. I don't even need to tell you all this, but I know you know this. The patients were dying. They were scared. They were alone. They were looking to their staff, and their staff was like, there's literally nothing I could do. They were trying to survive. There was violence. And that's what happens when folks don't feel safe and when they're put up against the wall. Many act out of violence, just like animals right? We teach our kids, don't pull the tail. When the dog gets hurt, dog's going to bite you. doesn't mean the dog doesn't love you. Dog's trying to survive. There are two studies, just two that I pulled up. There's been many studies about this. One talks about the impact of COVID on healthcare challenges. And there was a positive association with monthly COVID case rates and rates of violence in the ED. and Then this other one used 17 studies as a sample size, and the prevalence of violence was estimated at 47% of healthcare workers. And the workplace violence rate was higher among physicians.
0: And and imagine if you are a physician and a person of color, or a physician and a female, or a physician and you're on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, like you are literally not safe. I think that. For so long, we've all seen social media bits about, you know, the black nurse walks in and the patient says, I don't want care from a black nurse. And so then the black physician walks mm-hmm. in and they go, I don't want care from a black nurse. And they go, I'm a doctor. And they go, okay, I still don't want care from you. Okay, and then care for yourself. You know, that right there that should be dismissal from the hospital. If you're or, able to decide who is good enough to give you care and who isn't right. good enough to give you care based on their skin color, feels like maybe you're not that sick. Maybe you should just take <laughs> a Tylenol and let's go home because we have got a lot of people waiting in the ER. Well, I mean,
1: you walk into a bar and you'd hope that the bar would say the same thing. You walk into a library, you'd hope the library would say, you hope that. Anti-racist businesses are doing that. They are teaching that. They're like, here, here's what we've got for you. And you won't treat any of us like that. And so we will help you get stable and send you on because it's more than about the money. We value our team and we value this system and we value our black community. We value the lives of our professionals of color. Baseline. That's what I want the code of conduct to mean, though we've never seen that in healthcare before.
0: It would be really interesting to go through all of the code of conducts, especially patient code of conducts of these hospitals and see if anywhere in there, they actually mention valuing the expertise and dedication and education and compassion that their staff brings. And now my wheels are turning like, did you do this for a PR stunt or why did you do this? Because if you're writing this code of conduct just to throw out to the local media, then I think that we are going to have a hard time seeing that follow through. But if you truly value your staff, then I think we have a high likelihood that we might see good follow through. I have high hopes for Mass General Brigham and Women's. I hope that as a leader in our medical community, in our whole nation, I hope they do lead the pack. I hope that they do come back and say, we implemented this code of conduct for patients. Here is how our safety has improved for our staff. Here are the positive things that have come of it. And here is how we have actually implemented this thing throughout our hospitals in a tangible way. Way, I think if anyone's gonna do it, I think it'll be Mash Jan Brigham. I don't know. My well, fingers are crossed, but loosely.
1: you need patient feedback on that as well. And, you know, there are racist bigots who go to the hospital every day, right? But this does say if we believe you've violated the code with unwelcome words or actions, you'll be given the chance to explain your point of view. I really want that conversation to be done by like whom? Trauma, where, ethicist who's having that conversation to ensure the safety of the staff and the safety of the patient who identifies, Oh, you're a racist bigot. We're going to transfer you out, or we're going to send you home ASAP. There's ethics around both. I think ethics are things that there are both sides to the story. And that I think would help perpetuate those useful conversations and empathetic listening and things like that so that it's not on the responsibility of the care providers to be policing this. One, that shouldn't be their responsibility. They're the hurt party. And two, they're not trained in doing so. They're hardly trained in debriefing after uh, an intense or an unexpected outcome. They're hardly trained in debriefing at the bedside. So professionals are not trained in those sorts of communication so that they're not making this situation worse or unconsciously activating a flight response where someone is really just trying to say, I have been a victim by a male physician in the past and that's it. And then someone takes offense to that. I hope that there's a like third party that can be like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Let's just get to it. Let's get clear about what's going on because that I think would say a lot to the staff that the hospital is following through in the correct way. The point is not to give less community members health care. The point is to keep staff and patients safe. And I think doing this the right way is going to send a message to the staff that even if that progress of safety is slow, they may be willing to take some compassionate care training. I'm willing to take some trauma-informed care training. I'm willing to understand I'm not the person for this conversation, but I hope my patient, even if they see me as someone who's like, they're not sure they can trust. I hope we can develop that two-way street of trust so I can help prevent their traumatic experience and mine in the shit storm of that. They're both in, they don't have to solve all the problems, but I think there's a lot of small steps that they could take that are in the right direction. And then there's some that are in the wrong direction. Hire me to spotlight your (laughs) public policies (laughs) any day. We are here for you.
0: (laughs) So now that I do think is a tall ask. I ask these hospitals that notoriously have quote unquote committees that handle these things, patient complaints, and it takes months to hear from. I can't report something at 12.02 PM and you not get back to me for three weeks about the racist patient that literally kicked me in my pregnant stomach. It has to be immediate. You have to have some sort of trauma-informed team or safety enforcement team. I have no idea what this looks like, but it cannot be regulated by the same systems that we we currently have. They're not efficient.
1: Right. It's not efficient and it's not pro patient or pro healthcare worker. It's pro pro PR.
0: It's just pro (laughs) good light in the
1: community. (laughs) Pro bottom line, pro accreditation. It's pro healthcare center. You don't have to answer this, but do you want to talk about any feelings that came up?
0: I didn't really have too many feelings about it other than I was happy to see It go into place because I just stand behind the idea that when patients abuse providers, it's actually an administration issue. Administration is allowing patients to get away with things and they're not protecting the people who keep their business running every day. And I think Mm -hmm. I feel so strongly about that because I run my own business and I know what it's like to walk that balance of, quote unquote, the customer's always right Mm -hmm. slash but you're abusing my people and I can't allow you to abuse my team. You can't abuse my people. And so at some point I do have to step in. And I think that's why I feel so strongly that this is an administration issue. So I'm hopeful, but skeptical. I really want to see Mesh and Brigham do the right thing and really be this radiating example for other hospitals in our nation. I want them to do that. And until they prove that they're not, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, I believe you that you're going to do this. But honestly, I need some fast action. I want to see employees of MGB come out and say, I feel safer. I've seen the tangible steps. My administration is more available. I have witnessed people be removed from our hospital when they abused my colleagues, when they were chanting racist slurs, when they refused care because of someone's sexual orientation. Anytime we talk about medical staff getting abused, it makes me really sad. I was very close to being in the medical field. And I think I don't think I have it in me to go to work every day and be abused. And I truly do think that that's partly why the universe kind of steered me away from nursing school. I don't think I would have been able to make it. I just would not have ever taken the abuse. And it eats me away when I have to walk away from things because I can't fix the system. I mean, anytime we talk about 50% of nurses feel like they're being abused at work, Um, healthcare workers,
1: all healthcare workers, a portion of that up to 17 was physical and psychological violence.
0: That's too much. It's a wonder how we even have a medical system at all these days. Oh,
1: I'm sorry. Physical was 17. Psychological is 44. I was like, well,
0: oh, that seems son. low.
1: 44% of those are psychological. So I don't think people are like, oh yeah, I'm totally one that can take it. And we've heard from our listeners that listening to this information and hearing it from different perspectives has helped them feel braver and stronger to make changes in their own in their own work and in their own employment which is so exciting and that is our transition to what's coming what's coming hehe the biggest surprise ever should we tell them about season 2 mandy yes okay first let's talk about season 1 okay welcome hello you've reached the end of season
0: 1
1: this is episode 50 hehe
0: I cannot believe it. Do you remember when we started this and we were like, let's just see where it goes. We didn't even know if anybody was going to come over and tell their story. We didn't know if people would be scared of retaliation or scared for their job or even willing to answer us back. And just to see where this has grown and to see the impact and to hear nurses and physicians approach us and say, you have truly changed my practice it is, Ah, oh, now that's going to make me cry. Ugh. That just, This makes me so emotional to know we can change this system. We will not do it overnight, but slowly and surely we can do this. You guys.
1: And this is my first podcast and this is your second podcast and you are recording them at the same time. So you actually have two podcasts. I spout my mouth on other social media platforms and not po- other podcasts. <laughs> I had probably been a guest on a, a whole season of podcasts, if you add them all up before doing this. So I, I kind of had an idea, but I didn't know what it was going to be like. We started, it was just us for a long time. And then it was like anonymous folks, which were great. Oh my yeah. God. Those were incredible. And then over the years, we've had folks talk to us, not anonymous, about leaving the bedside suing their hospital and also nurses going to jail, right? So many things have happened in the last year and a half. A couple of analytics for you. For those who have been listening for a while, you might know this. You might not. For those who haven't, the links are below because you got some catching up to do. We are going to take a minute off and you will need to go catch up with those episodes because next season is going to be very different. Most downloaded episode was number 27, the Redonda Vaught case. I was surprised about that.
0: Were you? I wasn't. That was a ridiculous case. That's a case that I think when new textbooks are printed she'll be in there. I think it's going to be a lesson learned for every nurse going forward for better or for worse. I know that there were good things that came out of it, but for me, it was really a message of your system doesn't care about you enough to back you in the court of law if you make an honest mistake. So I hope that you can back yourself. And that for Mm -hmm. me, that breaks my heart.
1: Yeah. There are so many system errors in there that they weren't taking responsibility for from what we could see from our And they
0: hung her out to dry, Mm -hmm. ruined that woman's life in order to save themselves, knowing that they're a big system. They were never going to go under and you let someone walk the plank for you.
1: I think it was a validation from others of like, yep, we would guess that that would have happened because that's how it's felt. It just hasn't been public or publicized. And then the, Number of other nurses, specifically nurses of color and black nurses who receive similar treatment. Yeah. Uh, Second most downloaded is episode 40, leaving bedside after a toxic work experience. Yeah, that was a good one too.
0: It was one of my favorites. I think toxic work experiences are something that I would be willing to bet a hundred percent of medical professionals have experienced yet. How many people actually talk about it? Probably 1%, maybe even less.
1: I don't know. They talk to each other. You'll see people like looking for jobs, but then it's like people are beginning to do something about it, but Mm -hmm. kind of felt like accepted for Mm -hmm. a long time. How does this podcast feel different
0: than the other one that you're doing? It feels really different. So my other podcast is the birth on podcast, and it is directed towards pregnant people to help them have an informed and confident labor. And it is an evidence-based podcast, but I talk about the entire spectrum of things. and so it's a wider variety. And for me, it it feels more like safe Google search or mm-hmm. over 200 episodes and you can get evidence-based information on over 200 topics there are so many other ways that pregnant people can impact their birth experience by other resources that are out there. For this podcast, I think this is one of the only resources that medical professionals have to truly have a safe space to talk about things. We're going to hold you accountable. We're going to keep it real, but we're also going to we're going to keep you safe. Whether that means talking in a trauma informed way or just validating what you have experienced, I don't think there are many other avenues out there for healthcare professionals. And as someone who saw just such a glaring gap, I knew that without being in the system, I couldn't do it by myself. But I knew that there was a place for us to bridge this gap. And I think that's why it feels so impactful. And I think truly getting people to a safer space in their life. And that's yeah,
1: yeah. I think maybe I didn't realize that. Maybe I didn't realize that until now because we hear from our interviewees. We've had a few nurse interviewees that have said, Oh my God, that was like therapy. Or that felt so good. Thank you for that. I felt like I got more than I gave. Like I hope that it's useful. It was just my story. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah, of course it was useful. And then other nurses are like, oh, I listen to it every week. And I'm every time I'm like, really? I know me too. (laughs) Our goal on this podcast at the beginning was let's see what happens. Let's do this passion project and see where it goes. I was very protective of my time and energy at that point. And I didn't know what it was going to look like. And you were very excited and energetic about it, but also a business owner as well we were both protective of our time and could give a little bit but not a ton I'm still shocked when people know that it exists because I like don't talk about it that much and it's changing so what I love about it are the connections that we've made and we've been able to see a bigger view of perinatal healthcare. And so we're going to go deeper into a little bit of perinatal health care because we consistently talk about perinatal health because that's our passion. And we began working on season two, which will begin at the beginning of next year. It'll be early, January, February. And so follow along on Instagram. We'll post it there. Follow us, follow the feed. So like, how do you do that? You follow a podcast?
0: Yep. Just Download us. Like Spotify or Apple or Google.
1: And we will pop up because and we've been working on season two for two weeks now. And we are going to be doing something again that's never been done before. We are going to be answering the question of what can you expect from your birth center, rating and reviewing birth centers across the US.
0: I'm oh. so excited for this, Mandy. I really think this is going to be so pivotal. And I think that showing the people of the United States their options when it comes to having a baby is going to be so key to combating our really horrible birth stats. When you are yeah. in a country of our size and monetary means and power and our maternal mortality rate is increasing every year, we have got a serious Problem. And especially in the last two years when we have seen this increase happen, yet we've seen legislation and rules and regulations that are consistently against us. Yeah. It feels like not only do we have an increasing maternal mortality, but our systems are actively trying to kill us. And Mm -hmm. I'm very excited to help people understand what resources they have in their state. I am too. And I don't know much about birth centers.
1: So I'm thrilled to bring my experience and expertise in other areas and just get curious. Neither of us own a birth center. Neither of us are midwives. Neither of us work at a birth center. Neither of us have any affiliation with hospitals or any (laughs) healthcare entity. So we are a unique, less biased Mm -hmm. set of eyes and set of mouths storytellers. There's a better way to say that we're a better set of eyes and storytellers, but have you seen our eyes and our mouths? (laughs) We're cute. So we're coming to your birth center. We have a unique vantage point and we feel like we have this duty, this urgency, that this voice inside that says, yep, this is it. This is the path that we're going to go for season two. And we need rallied community yeah. support for yeah. birth centers. Yeah. We need numbers. We need energy. We need money behind birth centers. We need laws behind birth centers. And what he, he and I have are our experiences and we can reach consumers. We need consumers to know that birth centers are being how confusing it is for consumers. And I said this to like a small group of young newlywed folks the other day. They didn't know me. I was like at an event and I was so uncomfortable. They were like what do you do? And I had just had this conversation with you hee hee a couple of weeks ago and I gave a little like this is what I do and they're like wow that's really interesting and they kept looking at me and I was like do I answer more? And so I was like, well, yeah, you don't really know until you're in it. And they're like, yeah, I mean, for sure. And I did not say vagina, but I walked the line of like maternity mortality and the rates of black birthers versus white birthers. And I was like, you don't know who to trust. You don't know if the birth center that is in your town, the one or an adjacent town near you is affiliated with the hospital. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Sometimes you don't know if they're trauma-informed. You don't know how they're going to treat you, even if they do have midwives. How would you know that? And they're like, who asked Who asked you? And I just kept going because health birth centers are being shut down just as fast as they are being popped up all through 2020. And since there's been even continued and harder legislation to keep birth centers closed and they are closing. So it's hard to tell for consumers And for me, like what's a safe space and how do I know? And you have such a narrow window of time to figure that out. And will it be open in seven months when you need to go? So we're trying to be the feet on the ground for you. The pulse on perinatal healthcare, if you will. (laughs) And we need sponsors too. So also if you're watching and you're a sponsor, we want to pour into... These communities with your gracious sponsorships. So, we want to give you some behind the scenes. So, if you are affiliated with a birth center, either you've been to one, you know of one, you live near one, you work at one, you have worked at one, you want to open one, you're opening one, you've seen one close, come talk to us. You don't have to do it on air. Head to our hotline. You can leave us a little voice message which is super anonymous. You can leave us a note in our link, or you can just leave us a comment in our social medias at pulsecheck.podcast on Instagram. If you have access to us on other platforms, we want to hear from you and potentially go to your birth center.
0: So stoked for this. I I think that this shift in focus is going to be huge for people who know that the hospital is not the right facility for them to have their baby, but they are unsure about other options that they have, or maybe they don't even realize they have other options at all.
1: Oh, it's going to be so juicy and good. So keep following us. We will be back in a couple of months to begin season two. And we're going to start off with a bang with our first birth center that we're going to go see and check out. And we're going to do it right because we're information gathering bitches and we are are going to bring you along for the ride. So it's going to be super fun.
0: We are (laughs) detectives and 100% I cannot wait for this.
1: We're hardcore. We tell it like it is. And we talk about the truth too. In the meanwhile, we're trying to get sponsors so that we can do this sustainably. And we're not going to be asking birth centers to pay us to go there because that's not aligned. So drop your five-star review while you're watching or listening, whichever one on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast, drop a five-star review. Thank you so much. Tell us your favorite episode. We'd love to hear about that. We'll All right.
0: See you in the new year. We'll see you in the new year. Bye. Bye. you guys. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to leave you with a quick stat and something to think about until we see you next time. According to a 2018 report from the National
1: Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, the prevalence of sexual harassment in academic medicine is almost double that of other science and engineering specialties. This presents a serious danger that ripples into patient safety, clinical outcomes and burnout, which leads to costly loss of talent. How much safer could medicine be if nurses and physicians weren't also battling sexual harassment day in and day out? If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact us on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. We'd love to share your story.